We are super excited because today's episode is sponsored by BarkBox. As most of you guys know, my dog Mackie is obsessed with his chew toys. You'll often hear him <laughs> squeaking his toys in the background of our episodes. It's true. But those toys do not last long in our house because he has some tough teeth. And that's why we love our subscription service, BarkBox. We have a few of the BarkBox toys in our house, and not only does he love them, but they have lasted and none of them have gotten ripped up, which is a win. <laughs> So BarkBox is a monthly subscription box that offers an array of themed boxes for your pup. Inside your box, you'll find toys, treats, and Unleashed Joy thoughtfully designed to satisfy every dog's unique play style. They even have holiday themed boxes available right now during the holiday season. BarkBox has several boxes to choose from depending on your dog's needs, such as the Super Chewer box, which was designed to challenge and engage your pup for longer lasting play, like my dog Mackie. Right now, you can get a free extra month of BarkBox, which is up to a $35 value by using our link www.barkbox.com slash inhumanpod. So give your dog exactly what they want this holiday season by using our link www.barkbox.com slash inhumanpod for an extra free month of BarkBox. What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Adria. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. So today's case is going to be a little bit of like a shorter one, I think. Um, And I've kind of seen some comments lately on people asking for longer episodes. And I just want to let you guys know those are coming. It's just right now with the holiday season, we're both like so busy. So we're mostly sticking to some of the shorter cases. But I promise you in the new year, we will be deep diving into some cases. We have a couple planned and uh, there are longer episodes coming. Yes. Well, you have some longer episodes coming soon not just after the new year yes (laughs) and also we don't always know like what all a case entails until we start doing the research yeah very true we're sorry for that we didn't we don't know but yeah i saw that too like do longer episodes i'm like ah sorry like we're trying (laughs) i'm trying 45 minutes is a long time (laughs) (laughs) yeah we uh we definitely are working on that and uh but but like Andrea said, next week's episode that I do is going to be, it's a highly requested one. It's one that I think a lot of people will know, and it's going to be, I'm going to dive deep into it. Yeah. So be prepared. I'm ready for it. I'm excited. I mean, you know, yeah. as we always say, not excited, but I am excited to excited dig into to do that the one research myself. Because, because it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've and I've never done research on that case myself. I've only ever looked into it or uh, listened to it. I mean, yeah. I've never like looked into it myself, so I'm excited. But that's enough teasing. Don't you guys. get too much. You'll away. find out what that yeah. is next week. <laughs> yeah. And then also one other thing before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind you guys to send in listener stories that you have. We've gotten some more, and we are wanting to do another listener story episode soon. And so. This is just a reminder that if you guys have 
anything, you know, true crime, paranormal, literally any weird experiences, anything, you can send them in. Um, you can submit them directly on our website in humanpodcast.com. And you don't have to share your name. You can change the name of people or whatever. Um, you can Be keep anonymous. it as, as yeah. Um, and you can do that through the website. A name is not required. So, yeah, we just wanted to to remind you guys. And hopefully soon we'll be doing another episode, yeah. another listener stories episode, because I think you guys like that one. Yeah, I think so. We've gotten some more, too, and I'm excited to, to read them. I haven't read any of them because I like to be a little surprised myself. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right, so today we are going to be talking about the Los Feliz Murder House. Oh, I don't think I know this Have one. Have you heard of this? I don't think so. All right. Okay. Okay. So this is known as being one of Los Angeles's creepiest mystery houses. And of course, I live in LA, so this one's super interesting. And on top of that, it has a little bit of like... A hint of Christmas ties, so I wanted to cover it this week. Okay, but it's it's um it's an interesting one, so you'll see. Okay, so the beautiful Spanish revival mansion that is the murder house sits at two four seven five Glendower Place in uh, Los Feliz, California. So this is like in the hills of Griffith Park, if you know the area, but it's basically like in the hills of the LA area, and it's known to be a pretty wealthy area. So there's some nice houses, okay. you know, when you're up in those hills, it's it's pretty fancy. Like the Hollywood Hills? Was that? It's like not the Hollywood Hills, but, but not far from it, and similar okay. vibes. Like, okay. it's definitely... Because yeah. I can picture that in my head, so that gives me a better, like, Yeah, feel. so similar, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the house was designed by architect Harry E. Weiner, and it was built in 1925 by a man named Harry S. Shoemaker, and um, it's it's gorgeous. I mean, it's the white stucco Spanish look. Mm -hmm. It's 5,000 square feet, and it's a (laughs) three-story house, and apparently it has four master bedrooms. Okay, that's a little much, but all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then it has three regular bedrooms. It has a library, a ballroom with a bar. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. And a three-car garage. I've also heard that it has, like, servants' quarters. And the family that we're going to be talking about today, they didn't have servants, but... Um, the people that lived in it before them did, and there's, like, whole servants' quarters, so it's just, like, real fancy. Okay. And I'll post some photos on our Instagram so you can see it for yourself, because it's beautiful. And the front of it has nice manicured lawns, terraced gardens, like, you know, just really nice looking. Yeah, it sounds real fancy. (laughs) Yeah. In the 1950s, Dr. Harold Pearlson purchased this home and moved in with his wife Lillian and their three children Judy, Joel, and Debbie. So Judy was born July 31st, 1931. Joel was born April 7th, 1946. And Debbie was born February 16th, 1948. And Harold was a very prominent heart surgeon at a clinic in Inglewood, California. And then he was also a professor of cardiology at the USC School of Medicine. So he was pretty well known in the area. Yeah. 
you know, big doctor, successful doctor, professor. And then he was also known for writing a bunch of research articles in medical journals. So very well known. Especially back in those days. You know, that's like a pretty big deal. All of those titles. (laughs) Yeah. And on top of all of that, he was uh, working on creating this new technology for a syringe that wouldn't be as wasteful as syringes typically are. So this was something that he had worked on for years, and in 1938, he had filed a patent for it because he, you know, began working on it. And then 11 years later in 1949, once it was, you know, pretty much perfected, he'd been working on this for years, he needed some backing behind the product to be able to sell it because, you know, at this point it was created and he wanted to sell it. So he... Um, entered into a verbal agreement with a guy named Edward Shustak, and they decided that they would split the profits 50-50. And at this point, Harold had sunk a large chunk of his family's savings into this and just a ton of his time, you know, 11 years he's been working on this. Wow. So he entered into this verbal agreement, and after that, Edward basically swindled him out of the rights to it and took all of the profits that's why you don't do a verbal agreement (laughs) yes always have a written agreement so obviously harold was extremely upset not just because he lost the money but this was like something he had worked on for so long and edward just took the the like ip you know like the rights to it it wasn't just like he took these profits he took everything i would be pissed if that was me, I would have been yeah, furious. Exactly. Um, and there was a legal battle. Harold sued. And in 1952, he ended up with a little over $20,000 in settlement money from that case. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But basically, that did not cover... It barely covered the amount that they had put into the product, and then they had all these legal fees. So the family did take, you know, a pretty large financial hit with all of that. But regardless, you know, he was still a doctor and a professor. They were pretty well off. Yeah. So they purchased this mansion, and it was sometime in the 1950s. It is impossible to find what year they actually purchased it, but at Mm -hmm. some point in the 1950s, they purchased this mansion in the hills of L.A., they purchased it for sixty thousand dollars, which today is about five hundred thousand, <laughs> which, which is still, still cheap like for a mansion. Yeah, what? yeah, in the like L.A. hills. Yeah. So I was like, geez, but I also get it wasn't. It was kind of before that area like popped off. Yeah. So I guess it kind of makes sense. You know, it was probably an up and coming area at the time. Okay. So in December nineteen fifty nine, the family was living in their mansion. And they had decorated for Christmas. There were no outward signs of any conflict among the family. They were just a normal family. I mean, a well-off family, but, you know, normal family in that area. Uh, The kids were, I believe, 18, 13, and 11. So, you know, in high school and middle school and, you know, just a normal family. Right. On December 6th, though, something inside Harold cracked Mm -hmm. and after a completely normal day and an evening that they spent as a family he just something inside of him flipped oh no at 4 30 a.m after going to bed he went downstairs to his toolbox and 
came back upstairs and stood over his wife Lillian's sleeping body and hit her in the head with a ball peen hammer. Oh my gosh, I knew you were going to say a hammer. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> what is up with the stories we've been doing lately? Like the Lawrence family, the Martin family. Well, I guess the Martin family, they didn't, I know. That, that didn't happen, but still. But still. Crazy. <laughs> like all these families. Yeah. Oh my god. So he hit her with the hammer, but mm. left her to asphyxiate on her own blood. Whoa. So he didn't, that didn't like fully kill her. And I saw some reports that said that like her eyes were like completely bloodshot. Mm. Like that's how much blood like she accumulated was... before she actually died. Oh my gosh. So that's awful. So yeah, so he, he left her like that and then went into his daughter Judy's room. Oh. And Judy was 18, and she awoke to her father striking her in the head with that same ball-peen hammer, but his hit was off, so it didn't, you know, immediately kill her, and she started screaming, don't kill me. Oh. To which her father responded, lay still and keep quiet. Um, no. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And uh, her screams were so loud that they awoke the neighbors. And one of the neighbors later recalled that it sounded, quote, like a wild animal screaming. Oh, my God. Obviously, her father's attacking her. That's terrifying. Could you imagine being asleep at 430 in the morning and hearing that? I know. And what about her siblings? Oh, my God. They must have been terrified. I know. (gasps) So Judy, thankfully, managed to fight back and slip away from her father. And she ran to her mother's room to go get her and, you know, presumably run out of the house. But, of course, she found her mother dead. Uh. So she ran out of the house to a neighbor's house. And 13-year-old Joel and 11-year-old Debbie had also awoken to their sister's screams. And Harold saw them awake. And he basically went up to them and told them, quote, go back to bed. This is a nightmare. And, like, brought them back into their bedroom. Oh, my gosh. And, like, I mean, he wasn't wrong. It was a nightmare, but it wasn't, like, an actual nightmare. It was, like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, Thankfully, they didn't listen. And once Harold (laughs) was out of sight, they ran out of the house as well. And they were both unharmed. Oh, thank God. Okay. So. The neighbor who Judy had run over to, Marshall Ross, called the police, and then he went over to the house to figure out what was going on. No. So he tried to confront Harold, who, like, basically told him, go home, don't bother me. (sighs) And Ross recalled Harold just basically, like, walking around, dragging blood everywhere, because he's, like, covered in his wife's blood and now Judy's blood, too. And... You know, he was kind of just, like, wandering around. And he didn't try to harm Ross or anything, but he was kind of just, like, leave me alone. It sounds like he, like, maybe he had, like, a mental break and he was, like, disassociating. Yeah, it does kind of sound like that. Not that that's an excuse, but that's, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. So, before the police arrived, Harold had smeared blood all over the house, including the front door. And some reports say that the neighbors began, like, exiting their house their houses because yeah. they were like what the hell there was all this commotion <laughs> and the reports say that they were frozen in fear after seeing the quote massive blood that was the front door of the mansion oh my gosh yeah so it's just nasty and honestly <laughs> i think he was just like wandering around i don't think he was like purposely smearing like, it like bleh. yeah okay 
but he was just like wandering around. And then also when Judy ran out, she like had blood on her too. She had been hit in the head. So that probably got on the door as well. And she went into her mom's room. Who knows if she like touched her mom. Yeah. Got even more blood. Yeah. So Harold then went into the bathroom and found some pills and he found a barbiturate and I saw multiple names of the drug and I don't know the right way to pronounce it, so I'm not going to even try, but it was a barbiturate, which is used for, like, anti-anxiety, and this particular one was known to be used for suicide and euthanasia, and it's also known as something that is easily overdosed on. Okay. So he grabbed two of those, ripped them open, and downed them, and then he swallowed over 30 pills that were believed to be a form of codeine, So, you know, and he knew what he was doing. Like, he's a doctor. He knows what he's doing. Wow. He then walked back into him and his wife's bedroom and laid next to her on the bed using her bloody pillow. Oh, my God. And he died laying there, clutching the ball-peen hammer that he had used to kill her. That is, that's tragic. That's like a seriously, like, what was going on? Yeah. In that man's head. Yeah. So we'll find out a little bit, but... Okay. (laughs) Wow. So when police arrived, they found 42-year-old Lillian and 50-year-old Harold dead. And actually, when police arrived, Harold was still, like, alive. But by the time the ambulance got there, he wasn't. Yeah. And then they also found a kind of creepy message left behind by Harold. On his bedside table was Dante's Divine Comedy, which, if you didn't know, it's like a poetry book that's broken up into three parts. Mm-hmm. And the book was open to a, a page from the first part, and the quote was, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a dark forest, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Mm. So it's just kind of eerie being like, purposefully left open to that on the bedside table yeah and people were kind of like okay there definitely was something wrong and but despite that at first no one really knew the motive behind this murder suicide right but not long after a couple of things started coming up so first of all people started realizing that the family had really been having a good amount of financial difficulties in the recent years So remember the new syringe technology that he had sunk a ton of money into. So they had gotten in the lawsuit 23,956, but that's actually less than the amount of money that they had just put into the project. And then on top of that, they had to pay all of these legal fees. Right. So they didn't even make back the money they had put into the project project. They had been swindled out of all the profits, and then they had those legal fees. And who knows, like, over, what, you said 11 years, how much money he had invested in trials and whatever. So so that was, like, they were definitely having more financial issues than a lot of people had realized. And then apparently there had also recently been a car accident involving the kids and the family had filed a lawsuit against the person who caused the accident and they did win the lawsuit, but the damages they won only covered the medical costs. So they still had to pay all of these legal fees again. So it just led the family further into financial distress. Mm. So he probably felt like pushed into a corner. Exactly. And being like a prominent doctor and 
you know, in the 1950s, you're like social status depends on how much money you make and all of that so it just i think that all contributed and then to further this a letter was discovered written from judy to her aunt saying quote my parents so to speak are in a bind financially my family are on the merry-go-round again same problems same worries only tenfold Mm. So a lot of people think, you know, it just there was a lot of pressure with that. And then it was also discovered that Harold had apparently made multiple suicide attempts before this and that his wife had been trying to get him committed to a psychiatric facility. But again, it's the 1950s. She's a woman and, you know, he's well, a well-known doctor. So she hadn't been able to get him help, even though there were apparently some doctors Um, that she had talked to that had agreed that he should be in a psychiatric facility, but they just hadn't been able to get him there yet. Yeah. So, you know, it never happened. And this is kind of what became the believed motive between the financial difficulties. You know, that was possibly what was leading him to kind of have this mental, um, what's the word? Like a mental break almost. And just he was really struggling. And then maybe he had this, psychotic break Mm -hmm. and killed Lillian because he was mad that she was trying to get him committed. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of what a lot of people believe. And we won't ever know for sure, but that's what a lot of people believe happened. I just, I'm, sorry. I'm like, (laughs) Um, I'm just like, not confused, but I guess I have so many questions because he was try- he killed the wife, his wife, and then he tried to kill his eldest daughter, but for some reason he didn't try to kill the younger two. Maybe he just didn't think that yeah. they would have a lot to lose if they like he let them live, you know? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. So there are I wasn't going to I didn't put this in my notes. So I don't know the exact details behind this, but there are some rumors that At the time that, so apparently he had been in the military for a short period of time. And when he did, he filed as having no dependents. But that time would have been when Judy was born, like after she was born. So some people say that maybe Judy wasn't his, like biological daughter. Um, But there's nothing to like support that other than that he had filed as having no dependents. Right. So, I mean, definitely interesting, but but some people think maybe that's why he had tried to kill her, because it was, like, not, I don't know, not his biological daughter. My thought, too, was maybe she had been trying to help her mother get him help, you know, and, like, he knew that she was also part of that, and if he was, like, angry about that. Maybe he found the letter that she wrote or something. I mean. Yeah, Yeah, something like that. Okay, that makes more sense. So, after this tragedy, thankfully, all of the children were physically okay and they went um to live out of state with relatives and as far as i could find today they're all still alive and doing well they're all married and you know they they seem to be doing well so that was really good to hear it's so crazy like these older cases like the people are still around i don't know in my mind it's like i know the 50s so long ago (laughs) i also was like oh that was like 50 years ago but it's like no that was 70 years ago i was thinking 50 years well i guess only 60 because it was it was 59 but still like yeah that was my thought process too i was like oh that was only 50 years ago but no (laughs) but no (laughs) but back to the house so the mansion reportedly became basically 
an abandoned, stuck-in-time, like, almost time capsule, including the Christmas tree and presents sitting underneath it. Oh. A year after this happened, the mansion was sold at a probate auction to Emily and Julian Enriquez, and they, so they purchased it, but they never moved in. They left all of the Pearlson's family's belongings inside, including their furnishings and reportedly their Christmas tree and presents. Now, this isn't, this is kind of a rumor. Okay. It's not ever been, like, fully confirmed, but a lot of people report seeing the Christmas tree through a window. Okay. So, the Emily and Julian, instead of living in the house, they basically used it as a storage facility for their belongings. Like, they never moved in, and they basically only would, like, go there to store stuff. Okay. Which is, like, really freaking weird. That is. And nobody knows why. I mean, like, they probably got a pretty good deal on it, because no one probably wanted to buy you know, this murder, ma- murder yeah, mansion. Yeah, that's true. But still, like, why would you want to keep your stuff there? Like, just buy a storage unit instead. Yeah. Don't buy, like, so much cheaper, a mansion. Probably. But who knows? Okay. Um. So, eventually, Julian passed away. And then in 1994, Emily passed away. So her son, or their son, Rudy, inherited the home. Okay. He also did not touch, touch the mansion. And he, like, seemed to not even take care of it at all. He's like, I don't want this thing. <laughs> it just, yeah, he just, like, didn't want anything related to it. So he, he it was kind of the same thing. He kind of used it as storage, but he never moved in. And in 2009, at the 50th anniversary of the murder-suicide, he told the LA Times, quote, I don't know that I want to live there or even stay there. So he, like... I don't blame him, honestly. I think he was a little more freaked out no i don't either but like why the hell would i mean i don't especially rudy because he just inherited it but like i need to know why emily and julian bought this mansion it's so confusing and we don't know you know and it would make more sense because you know a lot of people unfortunately will capitalize on these situations to make money but that doesn't sound like that's what they did so there's really like no clear answer as to why they did it Unless they really just needed somewhere exactly. to store their stuff, which is bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I know. And I don't even know. I couldn't find, like, where they lived, if they lived nearby or, like, what. But I don't think they lived, at, like, they weren't a neighbor to the house yeah. or something. So it's not like it was the next door house. So, yeah, I don't know. But over the 50 years, the mansion basically started to decay because they were barely making repairs to the home. They were letting the lawn turn brown, the gardens became overgrown, and there were cracked windows that were left broken, and it was, like, pretty much more or less untouched since December 6th, 1959. That's so sad. I know. Eventually, neighbors did kind of try to maintain at least the outside of the house. They would clean up the yard. At one point, they painted the garage. And then at one point, the city actually intervened and required Rudy to make a couple of repairs on the property. But it was still, like, pretty much left abandoned. In 2015, Rudy passed away, and he had no heirs, so it wasn't going to be passed on to anyone, so it went up for auction again. But before that happened, and I'm not sure if this was when Rudy was still alive or not, I think it was after he had passed, um, but before it went up for auction again, a photographer named Alexis Vaughn was able to explore the murder mansion, 
And I'll link her blog about it in the show notes because she shares all of her photos and she's a really talented photographer and it's cool to see like, you know, she really shares a lot. I'll share a couple on our Instagram, but I highly recommend you you uh, click on it in the show notes and scroll through it because it's it's like eerie, but also really neat to see because it's like artistic almost like the feel of yeah. it. Yeah, it's like 50 years of or over 50 years, almost 60 years at the point she went of just like untouched but, stuff yeah but then people like had broken in so it was really weird um she reported that it was obvious that people had broken into the house over the years because you know there was stuff like spaghettios inside the house that <sighs> they weren't in production until after that happened yeah so like the, squatters the i guess probably have had it yeah, yeah. She also said that she did not see the infamous Christmas tree in presents, but she did say that it was possible that somebody had broken into the house and stolen it. But yeah, so, you know, we don't know if the present and tree thing is true, but it definitely could be and yeah, somebody could have stolen absolutely. it. Absolutely. 50 years, you know, somebody definitely would have stolen that by that point in time. Yeah, exactly. Um, She also said that it had clearly been abandoned and uncared for for years, and there was just stuff everywhere. There were clothes in closets, children's toys, there were papers and boxes all around, and you can see that from the photos she took, and like I said, it'll be down in the show notes because it's, it's really weird to see the inside of this, like, giant mansion and just all the stuff everywhere, and then also... There's photos of the outside of it, and you can see, like, the overgrown gardens and stuff like that. And you can just imagine how beautiful it once was, and it's so sad that it kind of just decayed. Yeah. So a year after Rudy passed away, the house was once again sold in a probate sale. It was listed as a beautiful and delightful three-story home, (laughs) and the listing said the house was, quote, waiting for that special person looking for a wonderful opportunity to remodel or develop. Fixer upper, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Call Joanne and Chip. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it worked. And in July 2016, the home was purchased by Lisa Bloom and her husband, Brayden, for $2.289 million. Wow. And they uh, plan to renovate the property. They basically start reno- started renovations immediately. Lisa told NBC Los Angeles later that um, she wasn't worried about the house's dark history, saying, quote, I don't really believe in ghosts and spooky spirits. The house didn't do anything wrong. The house is innocent. Which, I mean, that is true. The house is innocent. That's so, like That's so true. <laughs> I know. So they basically took the interior down to the studs. Like, it. they just totally gutted the inside they did pretty much maintain the exterior of the mansion but the inside was just completely taken down okay in 2019 seemingly out of the blue the house was once again listed for 3.5 million dollars and bloom explained that after three years of working on it that they had just given up she said quote since we've been improving it more than 50 percent we'd have to bring the whole property up to code which means tearing down the house and regrading the hills it's on. The property would be perfect for someone who wants a 5,000-square-foot gutted house to fix up as they'd like, or for a developer ready to tear it down, regrade the hill, and build the house of their dreams. So basically, because of how much renovation they were doing, they'd have to, like, 
bring it all up to code, which would basically include tearing the whole thing down. So that's why they decided to sell it because they just, it was more than they realized. And I guess before they purchased it, they didn't realize that they would have to like do all of that, you know, hill regrading and all of that. So, I mean, it makes sense. So it was listed for $3.5 million, but it was pretty much just a shell. And they, it was sold for $2.5 million in October of 2020. And at this point, we don't know who bought it. And <sighs> there have been no permits that have been filed for, you know, any like major construction. So its destiny still remains a mystery. Wow. Of course, there are some supernatural experiences that people have reported seeing over the years, including reports of orbs inside the house, hearing a woman's voice yelling no, and also reports of faces looking down from the windows. Mm. So, a little spooky. (gasps) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, this mansion was the inspiration for season one of American Horror Story, Murder House. Oh, really? So... Yeah, so that's kind of, like, what made it become so well-known. I mean, obviously, it was, like, this infamous murder-suicide abandoned house, but not as many people had heard about it until American Horror Story came out, and it was, like, inspired by by this. Oh, that's cool. There's also currently a movie about the house that's being created. There's not really a major timeline on it, but they have some people working on it, and, you know, it seems to be in the works. So that's going to be a really interesting movie i hope it's a movie that's like about the history of the house and not just like a scary movie <laughs> you're like i don't want to watch, watch it scary movies. yeah like i'll watch it if it's like a creepy movie but it's like about the house but if it's just a horror movie like i will not watch it <laughs> so yeah well but you can watch it and tell us how it is okay <laughs> <laughs> but that is the story of the los police murder house it's still very recognizable as far as what i could find you know the outside remains mostly unchanged i really want to go drive by it so if i do see that one day i will definitely like take videos and photos um you know somebody owns it so it's like private property but you can still drive by it so yeah and even though the house is creepy let's not forget lillian who was the victim in this case she was senselessly murdered by her husband Um, thankfully the kids were okay, but they've still had to live a life without their parents. So let's not forget the victim in the case. And, you know, hopefully the house can be properly renovated and can be a happy home for another family. Yeah. And I hope they got some retribution from the house, like being sold and stuff. And I'm sure they did, but I don't, I don't know how that works. Yeah, they probably did. And they're, you know, they're all living and seemingly thriving now so so that's good but yeah be sure to head over to our instagram to see photos this house really is beautiful and i'll share photos of lillian and the kids as well so you can see their beautiful faces um don't forget to subscribe if you're listening on apple follow if you're listening on spotify or do whatever else you need to do on any other (laughs) platform And leave a rating and review if it's available at the platform you're listening to. And that's all I got, you guys. I hope you found this case super interesting. If you're in the Los Angeles area, you should go check it out. And uh, and yeah, that's all I got. We will see you on Thursday with another case. And until then, keep it human. Bye. Bye.